This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. On today's episode, we're discussing slave revolts, especially women-led slave revolts in what is now New York State and during the Middle Passage. Slavery in what is now New York State dated back to at least 1626, with the arrival of 11 captive Africans on a Dutch West India Company ship in the new Amsterdam harbor. Under Dutch rule, some people who had been enslaved were able to earn partial freedom. And as the English were seizing New Amsterdam in 1664, the Dutch fully freed those with partial freedom. After the English took over, they continued to import slaves to support many different kinds of work. In 1703, over 42% of households enslaved people, a percentage higher than any other city in the colonies, except Charleston, South Carolina. In 1708, an enslaved couple, a native man named Sam, and a woman who was called only Negro Fiend in the records, murdered their enslaver, William Hallett III, his pregnant wife, and their five children in Newtown, Queens. They were quickly caught, along with several other enslaved people who had planned to kill their enslavers. Sam and the other men were hanged, and the woman was burned at the stake, the only punishment available under English law for her as a woman who killed her master. Such a crime was considered treason because a woman's husband or master was considered her natural lord, and killing him was like killing the monarch, thus a crime against the state. In response to this revolt, the New York Colonial Assembly passed a law in 1708 titled Act for Preventing the Conspiracy of Slaves which made a death sentence the punishment for any enslaved person who murdered or attempted to murder his enslaver. Despite that law, there was a slave revolt in New York City on April 6, 1712. That night, a large group gathered and set fire to a building on Maiden Lane near Broadway. They then attacked and shot the white colonists who tried to put out the fire, and they fled. The runaway slaves were quickly captured, and 70 were jailed, of whom six died by suicide. 27 were put on trial, among them four women, Sarah, Abigail, Lily, and Amba. Of the 27 tried, 21 were convicted and sentenced to death, including Sarah and Abigail. Either Sarah or Abigail was pregnant, so her execution was delayed. 
after she'd been in jail for some time, Governor Hunter asked the Queen to pardon her, essentially sentencing her to time served. But it's unclear from the record whether the pardon ever came through or what her fate was. In 1799, the New York State Legislature passed the Gradual Emancipation Law of 1799 to free enslaved children born after July 4th, 1799, but only when they reached the age of 25 for women or 28 for men. At the time, there was no provision for those who were born before July 4th, 1799. The Gradual Emancipation Law of 1817 declared that any African-American born before July 4th, 1799 would become free on July 4th, 1827. Those born before July 4th, 1827 were still indentured as children, but now only until age 21. Thus, by July 4th, 1848, all African-Americans in New York were theoretically free. Slave revolts during the Middle Passage were so dangerous as to basically be suicidal. On the first leg of the triangular slave trade, ships left Europe and sailed to Africa with manufactured goods. These goods were traded for slaves, and in the second arm, the enslaved Africans were forcibly transported across the Atlantic to the Americas. On the final arm, sugar, tobacco, and other products were transported from the Americas to Europe. The conditions on the Middle Passage were wretched, and mortality on the slave ships was high. As many as 15% of the enslaved Africans died at sea, equaling 2 million people. The ships were designed to thwart revolts. The enslaved Africans were chained and manacled below decks, although women usually had more freedom of movement. Despite the impediments, one in ten slave ships experienced some form of African resistance, ranging from usually fatal attempts to leap overboard to major revolts. Occasionally, rebellions sank ships from major explosion or fire, killing both the enslaved and their captors. More often, the insurrection was violently beaten back by the crew, and the rebels were punished or executed. When quantitative historians used statistical analysis to try to determine why slave revolts happened on some ships and not others, they found one clear pattern, that the more women there were aboard a slave ship, the more likely it was that a revolt would happen although they dismissed the finding as coincidence. To help us understand more about these revolts and the challenges of understanding the historical record, I'm joined now by Dr. Rebecca Hall. Dr. Hall is a scholar, activist, and educator who writes and speaks on the history of race, gender, law, and resistance, as well as on climate justice and intersectional feminist theory. Her recent highly acclaimed graphic novel, Wake, The Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts, weaves history and memoir that focuses on slave revolts 
in the Middle Passage and in New York City, and her own quest to uncover this unwritten history. Hello, Dr. Hall. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I have lots of questions for you. I want to start by just asking how you became interested in studying women-led slavery vaults. Uh, What sort of got you started on that? Well, I mean, I've always been, well, I've always been interested in history. I mean, I got my BA in history and I was thinking about getting PhD in history, but I decided to go to law school instead. And then, you know, after practicing law for eight years, I'm like, I'm going to go back and get that PhD in history. Um, And I've always been interested in the history of slavery and slave resistance because it's also a family history. My paternal grandparents were both born um, enslaved. They were both born in 1860. My grandmother on a plantation in Missouri and my grandfather on a plantation in Tennessee. And it's kind of unusual for someone who's my age, I'm about to turn 59, you know, to have, you know, to, to have, have grandparents who were born enslaved, but, uh, cause there was a big generation skip in my family, but the fact that it's possible, I think is really indicative of how not far away we are from that. And, uh, and it also has sort of kept me very conscious of it. And, you know, I come from a family of radicals and, you know, I've always been interested in how people fight back and uh, how people, you know, confront their oppressors and how uh, radical social change can happen. And so when I uh, was getting my PhD in history, um, I decided that I wanted to, you know, research that, you know, consider having my research focus be um, slave resistance and revolt. So as I was getting familiar with that literature, it was really weird because it, you know, every book or article that I picked up on slave revolt always like completely disavowed the idea that women would have been involved in that. And, you know, after enough of that, you know, a person starts to wonder like, what's at stake here? You know, why do you have to, you know, have so much ado about, about nothing? You know, it's like, why do you have to keep saying this? Like, and so then I ended up, you know, doing kind of a deep dive into the historiography of slave resistance and slave revolt in order to understand why that was. And now since this uh, graphic narrative has come out and I've done so many interviews, I've managed to get this sort of complex historiography down to uh about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the sort of thing that interests me, so and I, I, it's related to this, is this idea of uh, silence. And so in this paper, you have uh, Not Killing Me Softly. At the end, you talk about how that uh, silence is created. And that's mm-hmm. such a powerful, that, that silence is created. And there are so many layers in this story in which the silence is created. You know, maybe if we could talk some about that and, you know, it not just sort of this is missing, like it it just wasn't there. But, you know, the all the reasons that uh, that it is that that women aren't included in these stories uh, and, and that there was such a push to to disavow to say, exactly. yes, women couldn't be part of this. Exactly. Right. Yeah. In my academic work that, you know, that you've read, I mean, I talk at about this issue kind of like it's a pacification, right? Like, you know, it's not that Black women were passive and didn't participate in this type of resistance, but that 
they were actively pacified by the way history was written to to erase their active participation in slave revolt. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so uh, the other piece of it then and in, in what uh, what's so powerful about Wake is not just the sort of pacification of them, but in many ways, the pacification of you that people are really trying to silence you and silence yeah. your ability to do this work. Uh, so could you talk some about that? And then, you know, it's sort of how and why it came to be that you were putting that into the narrative in Wake. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, so what happened was, is that I wasn't planning to be a character in this book at all. You know, I was going to use the book just to tell these stories that I had recovered. And I wasn't planning to spend a bunch of time on historiography either, because I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but that's kind of niche. And I just figured, you know, people aren't going to want to spend a lot of time reading that. So, but then I, it became really clear that because these stories are so fragmentary for reasons we can discuss, I needed to put myself in it in order to explain uh, what was happening in the sources and uh, what I was finding and what was missing. And so then since I became like a character, in in the narrative, um, it made sense for me to to talk about what was true and painful, you know, because otherwise, like, why why write, you know? <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff in the in the graphic narrative that's not in the academic work because you don't one doesn't normally uh, talk about the kind of silencing that you that a person experiences. Um, in the process of their research, in their actual research, although that's changed, and there are there are there is work out there that focuses specifically on that. Um, but I, uh, so, but I wanted to you know tell the story about what actually happened and what made it these sources so inaccessible. You know, I mean, and it started right from the beginning, like where, um, you know, first I had to question like and basically dismiss all the mainstream history that that women didn't participate in revolt and then you know my dissertation advisor's like well I agree women probably did participate in revolt but you're never going to find the sources and then that's like wave a red flag in front of them <laughs> oh, you know, it's like I will find them you know you know and then and you know as I discuss in the book there's a whole range of of, of things, everything from being able to find sources, but the sources, the chronicling of events, like you often think of a chronicle, like uh, somebody's just sitting down and writing what happened, that that is going to just contain everything. But, you know, even what's chronicled is uh, completely shaped by the society that that person's in and what's considered relevant or not. And so I found the court documents related to this slave revolt that occurred in New York City in 1712. And there were four women prosecuted in, you know, in these court proceedings. And there literally was no chronicling of what they had to say or what motivated them in that particular moment or what they cared about or, and what was just so striking to me is that there's actually like this sentence 
in the court record that says, you know, having said no more for herself than she had previously said, we found her guilty and sentenced her to burn at the stake or, you know, be hung or whatever the various creative. But then I would look for what was the thing that she had previously said, and it just wasn't recorded. Um, it just wasn't there. But, and I talk about this in the book, but what was there was just tons of sort of evocations of, of um, the crown's power. Mm. Um, you know, at this time it happened to be Queen Anne, you know, but no, I mean, every page was like filled with this, like, I mean, it's almost kind of like a, I always think of it as like, you know, establishing jurisdiction. Uh, you know, I mean, I studied that as a lawyer, law student and as a lawyer, but I still, I always thought of it as this kind of almost like a magic spell that you kind of wave over something like, I'm going to like, you know, create this power that is arbitrary. And, um, and, and part of how it was created was this nonstop language, you know, where the queen, every time the queen's name is, anytime a date is mentioned, they have to say in the year of our, you know, queen Anne's whatever, you know, defender of the faith, queen of England and Ireland and France. That was kind of aspirational, I think, the France part. But anyway, so, yeah, so, so, so the point is, is that the record was filled up with, the chronicle was filled with things that was considered important uh, within the legal system and completely devoid of what I was looking for and, you know, what I considered important. Um, and the lives of these women, you know, they just, you know, had been like disappeared. And then, you know, the other kind of problem I ran into was dealing with just explicit racism um, in in archives. And yeah, I go into detail about that, but everything from like one of the focuses of the book is uh, women's leadership of revolts on slave ships. And um, in order to get more documentation of that, I really needed access to Lloyd's of London's corporate archives because Lloyd's of London got their start in insuring slave trip ships. And, and uh, they made a lot of money doing it. And one of the things that they insured against is if there was a revolt on a ship. So if there was a revolt on the ship and the ship owner lost property, they could file an insurance claim. And, you know, that policy was called the insurrection of cargo, which I don't even know where to start with that. With yeah. that sentence. But anyway, so I knew that if I got access to their records that I would could find, you know, many more sort of documentations of revolts because on, on slave ships, the documentation was crucial and it was detailed beca because of these insurance practices, right? And also kind of British regulatory systems required the captain and the ship surgeon to keep a certain type of documentation. But yeah, they would not give me access. Um, and they don't give historians access, historians who study slavery because they don't, I, I mean, I wasn't interested in suing them for reparations. I was just trying to find these stories, right? But I'm sure they're concerned about that. They're concerned about their reputation. And so, yeah, there was no way to get access to, to it. And, you know, I've talked with a lot of other historians of um, slave trade, and none of them were able to get access to that record either, those records either. So, so it wasn't just like uniquely me 
Although I think it might be shifting. They hired an archivist who actually reached out to me. And so it was part of this like racial awakening that allegedly happened last year. I I think it's over now, but, um, but she seems to be willing to talk to me. I, but I'm not (laughs) working on that book anymore. I'm actually on a, a second book. So, but yeah, I mean, I still would love to go back and see. Yeah, you know what they have. Yeah, oh, just it, it makes you wonder how many stories haven't been told. You know, where where there isn't even the the piece of the historic role record to to follow. You know, you talk and and I've heard these terms before as well of sort of reading against the grain mm-hmm. and of historical imagination. And so I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about what what those are and and how you have to use those in looking at these kind of things where the, the sources are just going to be incomplete. Right. Right. So there's, I mean, so there's a few layers of issues here, right. Uh, just in terms of primary sources. I mean, we can get into the, how history has been written about it, you know, but just looking at sort of the primary sources themselves, the chronicling of the events at the time, there are, there are several, there are a lot of things that get in the way you know, that bury these women's lives and make them almost impossible to retrieve um, their lives and their stories. You know, everything from like what I was talking about earlier, you know, what they have to say is irrelevant and is not chronicled, not reported. Um, You know, I mean, enslaved women were not keeping diaries and to, uh, access issues like at the Lloyd's Lloyd's of London to like, you know, kind of more blatant racism that I experienced at the Queen's archives where I was trying to track down information, the court records for a revolt that happened in Queens in 1708. And uh, so reading sources against the grain, I mean, so, I mean, it's really something any historian should do it's really something anyone should do when they're looking at pretty much any claim to truth about anything, right? Is, you know, where it's like you, you go into it, remember, like being very conscious of, okay, who's creating this document? What's the purpose? Like, why are they creating it? So for example, on the slave ship logs, you know, for insurance purposes, if they're being created and they're also being created to comply with, uh, British regula- regulation of the slave trade, and uh, sort of what's at stake, um, and who's like important and who's not considered important, um, and then uh, so it's about against the grain is kind of it's like kind of like a basic principle where where you just don't take something at face value, you know, you kind of turn it and look at it, you know, literally against the grain to see, you know, what's there. Um, and, and, you know, in my work, I pay a lot of attention to silences. There's, uh, I mean, there's great scholarship on like one of my favorite books is by Michelle Rolf Trio called Silencing the Past, where he talks, he talks about it in the context of the Haitian revolution, but he, he, it's this short, beautiful book where he really kind of talks about a lot of these these um, mechanisms. 
you know, Cydia Hartman, you know, her latest book, Beautiful Lives, Wayward Experiments. I think that's what it's called. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, she does a lot of work of like trying to recover, you know, what we call, you know, the subaltern, like the people that are just at the very bottom of the social structure, um, you know, trying to recover their lives and their stories. And she was the one who came up with this term, which I actually didn't know when I was writing Wake. I wish I had, it would have been really helpful. Um, This concept called critical fabulation, which is, which is, I mean, her background is literature, although she does a lot of history, but it's this idea that, that the truth, that in order to access the truth of people's lives, whose where their documentation of their lives have been so thoroughly erased, at certain points, it becomes necessary to hypothesize, like, you know, um, to try to fill in some of the of the blanks. Um, I don't use the term critical fabulation, partly because I didn't know it. And also, I'm not a lit person. And, and fabulation isn't a term that I, doesn't speak to me. And, it, it, uh, and so what I talked about was uh, measured use of historical imagination. So there are a couple of sections in the book which are clearly marked where I'm saying, okay, the record has now fallen silent. Uh, you know, uh, l- l- let me try to imagine what was possible. And then in those sections though, so meticulously researched everything from like, you know, the 1712 revolt where, you know, the documents, uh, you know, the colonial governor of New York talks about that there was an oathing ceremony, like that the, the, you know, something like tying themselves to each other by sucking the blood of each other's hands or, you know, whatever. And, you know, I was able to find details about that kind of uh, ceremony, which doesn't involve any blood sucking. (laughs) Um, in in, In the British colonies, at the same time, but in Jamaica um, and among the same ethnicity of people, which were Akan speakers from what's now currently Ghana. And, you know, so so when I create a scene with this oathing ceremony, it's based on that, you know? So that's just an example of how like literally everything about it, like (laughs) one of the things is, you know, because when I did the original scholarly work, I wasn't thinking visually at all. So when I was like, oh, I'm writing this book. Oh my God, I need to do like, I need to do visual research. And it's like, well, how do you do visual research from like the 1700s? There's no photos, you know, there's no. And so, I mean, I ended up doing things like, you know, what did this, what did the city of Manhattan of New York look like in 1700, you know, and I ended up like reading like 20 years of the city council minutes, which were just so tedious, but (laughs) I learned a lot about it. Like, you know, because it is so dark at night, we are now requiring every third house to put out a candle lantern. Um, You know, I'm like, oh, okay. So that's what the streets look like. And then it's like, there's been complaints about how much the candle lantern little candles cost and whether the city should reimburse. And then this goes on for pages and pages. It's like, okay, now we've decided every fifth house will put out a candle, you know, in the dark of the moon, you know? So it's like this weird way to like, but yeah. So the point of this is that all of it was thoroughly researched. So it's not made up is the point. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, uh, it's so great. One of my other favorite books this year was uh, All That She Carried. And that there's a, a similar sort of, we don't know that this person did this, but we know in this time period, these kinds of people could have done this. Uh, and it, I think it, it does so much to sort of fill in uh, fill in those details and, and help you really imagine these people's lives. So I, I wonder too, if you could talk some about just the uh, sort of from a process standpoint, how you got to the point where you were writing a graphic novel, you know, you, you talk about how this was originally, you know, an academic piece and, you know, how it got to this format. Uh, and, you know, I, I have to say, I've, I read a lot of history and this is, I think, the best depiction I've seen of how the work of history is done. And it's so, you know, I know you said it's kind of niche to talk about like historiography and stuff, but to me, that's the really exciting stuff is like, mm -hmm. what, what, what does this actually look like? Uh, right. So how did you get to this point where you were writing a, a graphic novel? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with this PhD in, in history, I had, you know, tried various ways to teach, you know, I'd was not at all interested in adjunctive. So I was only looking for like tenure track positions and, and um, like visiting professorships and, you know, kind of long story short, I kept getting fired. And then I started teaching high school, which I actually really loved. I mean, it was funny because I like had taught law school at Berkeley because I had a Mellon postdoc law school at the university of Utah, <laughs> you know, graduate school at UC Santa Cruz and at Berkeley. And then it's like, okay, now I'm going to teach 11th graders, you know, <laughs> and um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it, but I really enjoyed it. it. But I kept getting fired, you know, for, you know, talking about race, um, you know, the, the idea that these like race teaching wars or something that's new. I mean, the, I feel like when I see what's going on now, I feel kind of like, you know, I'm in the front row eating popcorn, watching it, you know, because it's completely shaped the last 10 years of my life. You know, it's not like it's some new thing. And so I was like, okay, um, I'm not going to hit my head against any of these walls anymore. What would I really like to do? And one of the things, the biggest regrets that I had was this feeling that all this work and research that I put into this, like my district, that was like my master's thesis, my district, four years of dissertation, you know, the article that you refer to, uh, that all this stuff was just buried in academia, you know, and no one knew about it. And it wasn't even impacting the field, like the same, you know, crappy books kept coming out, you know. And uh, I was like, this is, you know, how can I, you know, it's like I gave myself a sabbatical and I was like, how can I sort of bring this out? And I, find graphic novels to be very powerful, um, particularly um, ones, I actually don't like the term graphic novel, but it's, it's especially when it's not fiction. Um, but I don't really, I don't, <laughs> apparently I don't get to define that. I, so, but I call them graphic narratives. So, you know, I have taught the, uh, the book Mouse by Art Spiegelman. My son actually learned it like twice in, in his, like once in middle school and once in high school. But there, I mean, there are just some amazing books. Um, and so I've been a fan of the medium. And so it made me think like, huh, could I do that with this? And then it just, you know, kept happening. I mean, it was like, you know, I hired an artist, you know, paid him a per page rate of like $100 that I put on a credit card. <laughs> you know, Well, we started a Kickstarter to try some of the like, 
to reimburse some of these funds. And then the Kickstarter kind of took off and then there was all this press. And then I got contacted by an agent, you know, the same person who represented uh, Mars and Satrapi for Persepolis. And, you know, the next thing I knew there was like, I, she was teaching me how to write like a, a book proposal for, you know, a trade press. I mean, I, I've published in academia, but, you know, um, and then there was like a auction and people were bidding. It was just crazy. It was just like, and so, yeah. So then we had, and, and the thing was, is it wasn't written yet, you know, when they were auctioning for it, there was like eight pages penciled and maybe 20 pages of script. And so it's like, wow, okay, now we're going to do this. And, you know, Hugo, my illustrator, who's like amazing, um, he hadn't done anything like this either. I mean, he was working as a pedicab driver in New Orleans at the time. So we were both just like, woo, like, I mean, you know, he, he drew comics kind of in his spare time. But yeah, it's like, okay, now we have 15 months you know, before this is due. So yeah, it became both of our full-time jobs. So yeah. And, you know, Simon and Schuster optioned a second book, which I'm working on right now. So yeah. I love that. So the, the second book will also be a, a graphic narrative? Yes. Yes. And it's going to be take, it's going to take place during the civil war and reconstruction. Yeah. Right now it's tentatively called uh, Taking Freedom, Black Women and Emancipation. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I, you know, I, I'm so glad that you did. And, you know, I feel like there's more uh, historic graphic narratives coming out, um, but a lot of them are are aimed at sort of the, the kid or young adult audience. Uh, and this, of course, is, you know, my 10 year old has read it and enjoyed it, but that's not the, you know, sort of, he has, he loves it. <laughs> um, wow. But, uh, you know, obviously that's not the the sort of audience that you're writing for in this. I would be concerned actually. <laughs> but, you know, people know their own kids, what they can yes. handle. Yeah. And yeah. But, yeah, no, this is for adults and they're, and they're, you know, there's plenty in this medium that's for adults, you know? Um, and it, I think one of the things that people don't quite understand is that it is a rigorous methodology, right? It can, it does, there are things that you can do in this medium that you can't do in any other medium. Like, I mean, what, the basic structure of the graphic narrative, you know, is panels and the space between the panels, which people call the gutter, right? Mm. So the relationship of panel, gutter, panel, gutter is, like a pretty complex uh, process where you decide sort of the temporality of how this is going. Like, if you want to see every frame of something, you go to a movie, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if it, you know, this is like, you know, the, the author is choosing very carefully what to include. Mm -hmm. And then once you have that sort of basic structure of panel, gutter, panel, gutter, um, you know, it, it's like the gutter is this really generative space because it's the space where people are sort of interpolating their own imagination in, in helping to co-create reading this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, you can then do things and kind of, kind of mess with it or trouble it that allows you to create other like experiences. So I wish if we were doing a visual thing, I could show you a couple, <laughs> but you know, there, you know, there, there are scenes where like the panel 
below is pushing through the gutter into the panel above. Mm. And that's very intentional because this book was very much about putting the past right up against the present and seeing them as this back and forth relationship. And then this medium was therefore perfect for that. Like I can't imagine doing it really in another way. So I think people are starting to begin to take it seriously. Um, You know, we've gotten like, you know, insane amount of really stellar reviews. That was surprising to me. I mean, it's a good book, I know. (laughs) But, you know, just you get reviews and you, you get bad ones and you get great ones and you get mediocre ones. And we just keep getting stellar ones. And I mean, PBS was saying that this sets the new standard for illustrating history and you know, and a lot of people like yourself, but, you know, even without your academic background, were fascinated by the, the historical process of research, which was fun because yeah, it's been kind of a joke. Like, are we going to have like action figures? Like, we'll have one like the historian, <laughs> you know, and it's like, OK, when when do you bring in the historian to come in and like help fight evil? You know, so, yeah, people I like a lot of the feedback that I've gotten is that people were actually quite fascinated by the historical research process. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very cool. So I could probably keep asking you questions all day, but, <laughs> but to be mindful of, of your time, uh, is there anything else you wanted to make sure we talked about? Yeah, yeah. I really wanted to talk, I mean, there's so much we could talk about, but I, I really wanted to make sure that people understood about how the history of slave resistance has been written in this country mm-hmm. and try to understand why women have been so completely erased. You know, when the history of slavery was first being written, it was being written by, you know, former slave owners and, you know, lost cause Southern white men writing, you know, about how slavery was a benign institution and was this had this civilizing effect. And it was, you know, and and there was no resistance at all to slavery because it was this benign institution. Right. And then when that was being um finally sort of questioned, there's this, you know, you get in the 60s, you know, in the civil rights movement, you get sort of more uh, Black people, Black men in the academy writing, and they're like, uh, excuse me, there were actually hundreds of slave revolts, uh, which there were, and they they were working on, you know, recovering that, but at the same time, but that takes like anything, any history that's written is always written in a social political context. And, you know, the social political context at that time was this, you know, it was like the war on poverty. It was this whole thing about why are Black people, you know, poor? And it's like, well, it's not because of economic oppression. It's because of the culture of poverty that Black people's culture is deficient. And, um, you know, specifically their gender roles are distorted where you have this sort of matriarchal black woman and the emasculated black man, you know? And this was like the discourse. It was like everywhere, you know? And strangely, it's actually still around. There's still remnants of it around. But um, kind of in response to this, you know, these historians were saying like, well, I mean, I mean, like in Genovese's role, Jordan role, which is kind of like, he's like, you know, black women would not undermine their men by participating in revolts. Like, and, you know, it became this whole, you know, thing. And then when you started to get like women historians, feminist historians starting to write like in the 70s and 80s, you know, their position on it was like, well, 
if black women weren't involved in revolt, they were involved in all these other kinds of resistance that are equally important and perhaps even more impactful, like individual acts of sabotage and arson and poisoning and tool destruction and kind of like part of that weapons of the weak thing that was going on in the 70s and 80s, which is also you know so important. Um, but where I entered the picture was, yes, that's all true, but I'm not giving up on the first thing, you know, and what it, there's something about coordinated acts of violent resistance that is fraught, you know, because of these reasons that we were talking about. So, but I came in it backwards, like what, what is this? And then like went back and sort of, you know, learned all, all of that. And now I feel like, um, you know, now it's like, you know, it's post-Cena. <laughs> it's, you know, I, people, I mean, people weren't like, I mean, regular people, like regular interested people who were reading this book were not at all shocked, you know, that women were involved in, you know, it's just, but still, you know, a lot of historians are like really, it, I mean, it's shifted, but you know, there are some who are just still really like, really, you know, and these kind of historiography, I mean, this is what I'm talking about when I mean historiography is like the social political context in which something history is written and, and how it, that, that shifts over time. So that's not so much historical method, like how you deal with sources, mm-hmm. um, but like the historiography, you know, of slave ship revolt, having this sort of myopia about women not being involved in it just messed up the whole history you know I mean I talk about it in 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 the book where you know after these historians put together this like incredible database of over 36,000 slave ship voyages and you know they're quantitative historians who make databases and query them and you know they found out that like there was a revolt on one in 10 ships which shocked everybody because you know, revolts on ships were just so basically suicidal, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when they were trying to look at, well, what's the difference between the ships that had revolts and the ships that didn't have revolts, they saw that the ship, the only difference, statistical difference, statistically significant difference is that the more women on the ship, the more likely a revolt. And these historians immediately dismissed this. And it's like, this is just some kind of fluke because we know that women weren't, you know, involved in this type of resistance. So then they completely overlooked the fact that women, you know, once the ship left the coast of Africa, women were brought on deck and unchained. And that's where the weapons were. And it all makes sense, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I am so glad both that you did this research, uh, but then also that you decided to to share it with the world in this way, um, because it is just a, a fantastic book. Uh, so tell everybody how they can get your book. Well, wherever books are sold. So you know, at your local independent bookstore. You can get it on, at bookshop.org. You could get it on the evil Amazon. You can, you know, and if you go to your local bookstore and they don't have it, ask them, why not? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's one of the things about having a big, big press like this is that they, they get the stuff out. Yeah. 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 And I'll, uh, I'll put a link uh, certainly so people can find it. And anyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows I love uh, ebooks and audiobooks, but this is one you got to hold in your hand. You need this one right. it's not <laughs> in paper. An audiobook. But there is an audio drama that we're in the process of making. Excellent. So, yeah. Excellent. Very cool. <laughs> well, 
Dr. Hall, thank you so much uh, for speaking with me. This was really, really fascinating conversation. And I just, I, I love hearing about and learning about these these silences and the way that, that silence is produced and the, the way that mm-hmm. we can try to, to read into the silence. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me yeah. onto your podcast. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW.